Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. I'm your host, Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. I hope you all had a restful break. We are back at it. Uh, a few more episodes here before the end of the year. I can't believe it's already end of November. Boy, is time flying. Today, fellows, Dr. Carolyn Ramirez, a staff scientist at the Natural Resources Defense Council, and Gabriel Gadsden, a PhD student of environmental sciences at Yale University School of the Environment, discuss some eye and mind opening books that they've been reading on environmental justice. I think you will enjoy this one. Well, welcome everybody uh, to the joint podcast. I'm Gabriel Gadsden, and and I'm Carolyn Ramirez. Doctor. We're really excited to be here with you today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, today our podcast is about books, not just any books, but books that particularly pertain to or tangentially pertain to the environmental justice movement. And so the point of the podcast is to bring knowledge of tangentially related environmental justice books to a broader audience to understand the intersections of environmental justice, what unique perspectives there are, and how they can enlighten or at a minimum push dialogue surrounding the environmental justice movement. Um, but right now we're going to talk a little bit about books. So let's first talk about the book that you read. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that and, and why you picked it up? Yeah, Absolutely. So the book I read is Waging a Good War, A Military History of the Civil Rights Movement, 1954 to 1968, and it is by Thomas Ricks. Uh, why I got this book, uh, I love nonfiction. I love anything that pertains with uh, war generally. Um, I am an environmental justice scholar, uh, a, I think, avid reader of the civil rights movement. And I felt like this book was trying to do something new. And I think I was uh, right in my, my assessment. Thomas uh, Ricks typically does a lot of war and Eurocentric writing. This was a push in a very different direction uh, from their previous works. And I think that uh, they're, they're better for it. So why this book and why now? So Given that the civil rights movement relied heavily on nonviolent approaches, it may seem surprising or even jarring to think of it in military terms. Yet participants in the movement often uh, evoked that analogy. So key figures like James Lawson, uh, you know, the uh, physiology and tactics and training, a cadre of, of influential leaders, once common in protracted struggle, is the moral struggle that is like warfare. It's moral warfare. Uh, and I think that, you know, reading the preface, it really dawned on me that a lot of the ideas around nonviolent movements, uh, tactics, communication that are so important in military warfare uh, are also the same in type of moral warfare in the civil rights movement. And now we're seeing that uh, today in the environmental justice movement. But I haven't seen that language, you know, necessarily be put uh, two and two together. And so I think that this was an interesting book that uh, was able to, I think, kind of move my thinking. Uh, and, and, I, and I realized that military speak is not always uh, welcomed 
uh, it certainly kind of brings up pretty uh, un, unsavory images. I think people really think of like bloody conflict, and, and that certainly that's the case. But I think more importantly, the the analogies that are driven from warfare, particularly those of tactics and, and training, to really uh, wa- uh, wage a successful nonviolent war, to say, uh, was was really interesting. What was the author's kind of background in in this? Have you read other books of his, and um, how does he kind of apply this militaristic? context to that because it's it's a really interesting perspective and i'll admit i haven't read the book yet but it's on my list now because you read it so good question they're really open about not being a expert on (laughs) on the civil rights movement or the the environmental justice movement for that matter that wasn't even the point of the book they are uh an expert in american i think uh national security and, and, and military kind of campaigns. They have quite a few books on the uh, Iraq war on Afghanistan. The actual book of like why I know this author though is Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom, uh, which kind of uh, chronicles Churchill and Orwell's kind of uh, overlapping time uh, and, and, and how in their own war set they were a part of. Um, Orwell famously was part of the Spanish Civil War fighting uh, for not the monarchy. Um, and Churchill, uh, obviously, with uh, World War II. And so these ideas of, uh, of kind of fighting for freedom, fighting for good, uh, overcoming kind of moral obstacles uh, has been a running theme in Rick's work. I think that this now evolving into understanding the civil, uh, civil rights movement as another uh, theater, per se, uh, of of good and bad of, of of fighting for what is right. So, what are what are some of the ways that this book directly ties into the environmental justice movement? It's nonviolent. The civil rights movement and, and talking about it as a nonviolent war and uh, what we're up against. I think that anybody who's doing environmental justice work uh, or environmental work in general knows that we're up against some really big powers. Uh, there's national interest. There's capital interest uh, that is not really looking for change, not looking to switch from fossil fuels, not looking to retrofit homes. You know, you, you look at the sticker price and the personal changes and social changes that are going to have to be made if we're, we're able to kind of avert this crisis of, of climate change. Thinking about the resolve that people who are in the civil rights movement had nationally, doing large-scale uh, marches, sit-ins, nonviolent protest, um, traveling, logistics. Um, when you realize what, an, what a grand operation the civil rights movement was and how, why they were successful, I think that there are some lessons to be learned on the environmental justice and environmental justice movement side. So you're talking about using kind of military structures to improve these kinds of social justice movements, environmental justice movements. Um, and that's really interesting because all of this starts at the grassroots, right? Like we all, we're all in our community, we unite over a problem, especially before the days of social media and the internet when all of this happened, which is so interesting to look at that context of kind of a nationwide effort in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Do you have any kind of specific ideas on what that would look like 
with the EJ movement, maybe in the space that you work in? You know, I, I really appreciate you bringing up the grassroots effort um, with the environmental justice movement. And, and certainly I think that's, I mean, that's how the civil rights movement got started with people who were fed up um, <laughs> with not being treated like citizens. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and decided to stand up against it, but they, they only won years and years later. They realized that they had to scale up that your local effort for whether it's food justice or energy justice or water justice uh, is only as good as the next group that's able to take your wins and apply to their own struggle. And so recognizing that a water crisis, you know, the, the saying that injustice anywhere is an injustice everywhere. We can't sleep or, or stop, you know, environmental justice just because the, the pipes uh, in one, you know, state have been changed over or one neighborhood has off-grid electricity, we have to think about it holistically. And so we have to be able to effectively share the strategies that worked, change them uh, in certain contexts. If you're going up against a a state that, you know, somewhere like Texas, where the the grid isn't, uh, you know, federal. A little too familiar with that. (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, And so I, I think really, I think the grassroots effort of really being able to communicate what worked in a certain context and then being able to apply those wins elsewhere and those tactics elsewhere, be able to raise money more effectively uh, yeah. to actually fund those campaigns. And also recognizing that it's, it is a long haul. The civil rights movement is still, in, in all intents and purposes, going on still. Um, there's going to be some big wins. There's going to, there's going to be small wins. There's going to be really bad setbacks. There's going to be small setbacks. Uh, reminding ourselves, I think, and at least in academia, we always ask, you know, how do you not get burnt out? Our life depends on it. I think that the the folks during the civil rights movement in the 60s realized that their lives depended on it. Back to, you know, maybe the shortfalls of some of this. So, I mean, when I when I think of militarization, and I'm, I tend to think of, you know, the military industrial complex and, and, you know, how the biggest representation of militarism in our day-to-day lives is the police. And that was... That that was basically what in the civil rights movement organizers were essentially going up against, right? Society and and policing. So, from that perspective, are there shortfalls in the way that this book looks at militarism? Yeah, I, I think that's going to be the the biggest push. You know, I've talked to some people about it, and it's like it's interesting, but you're absolutely right. The the, the militarization, the word military. I mean, I think. It's difficult, and the book doesn't really get into the nuances, doesn't try to go in any particular direction. It takes the civil rights movement, it takes military analogies, it places them on top of the civil rights movement, it gives a nice conclusion <laughs> that military, any type of theater, never really ends. It's always a perpetual, ongoing thing. Us being critical, I think that I said it once, not romanticizing this, realizing that other people are using these strategies as well. And so how do you maybe reclaim something? I think maybe that's the biggest protest in it. It's like, okay, well, the you know police being militarized, that doesn't mean that we can't, and, and when I say we, environmental justice scholars, grassroots organizers, you know, kids, moms, 
you know, brothers, sisters coming together for environmental change, they can put themselves in, uh, even if it's just uh, the discipline of not taking your car to work, discipline or, or giving up time, service in, in terms of going to right. a protest. There's other ways that we can reclaim what militarization is um, yeah. for the for the EJ movement, and so certainly there are some some pitfalls, and certainly it's going to be unsavory, I think, in a lot of ways for for people, and and certainly given this day and age of gun violence and and what the military stands for and conquest, I think that th- those are certain they're they're fair critiques, uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't uh, borrow and reclaim some of those ideas that could potentially help the EJ movement as a whole. Yeah, that's a really great perspective. Yes. What are some of the other books you're reading, and what are you what are you excited about um, that you might want to share? I'm reading right now an Afro Indigenous History of the United States. Definitely check it out. It's it's more. It's, okay, it's, that sounds fascinating. <laughs> it, it, it Who wrote is. that? Ky, uh, Ky, Kyle Mays is the author of that book, um, and it was part of a larger collaborative effort about Indigenous slash other history of the of the history of the united states um mm-hmm. i can't remember the other books that are a part of the series but this is just one of them and i because i love nonfiction and military theater i read death at san pierto uh the book about ernie Pyle, who was a kind of straightforward shooter about in and out life of a gi mm-hmm. infantryman during world war ii yeah, I'll stop there. But those are the two books I'm reading right now. One that I've read, I'm, and I'm currently reading the Afro-Indigenous History of the of the History of the United States, which is quite fascinating. Yeah, no, that sounds really interesting. I think we're going to have to have a little cohort reading list for the future, for sure. There we go, yeah. Um, tell, tell us what you've been reading. So I read this really interesting book um, called Pollution is Colonialism, um, written by Dr. Max Lebrun. Um, they are a, um, I'll just read what I wrote for their intro. Uh, they identify as Michif and settler and use they, them pronouns. Um, and they're from Lac La Biche Treaty 6 territory in Northern Alberta, Canada. Dr. Le Boiron is an associate professor of geography at Memorial University in Newfoundland, Canada, which, uh, sits on the ancestral homelands of the Mi'kmaq and the Biotuk. This book is grounded in so much humility and so many different indigenous principles. I I'm not I'm going to be reading a little bit from it rather than trying to paraphrase because I think it would be disrespectful to try to <laughs> come up with my own words. So, um I want to read the acknowledgement that they wrote. The territory in which this text was written is the ancestral homelands of the Beothuk. The island of Newfoundland is the ancestral homelands of the Mi'kmaq and the Beothuk. And this, th- when I'm speaking in first person here, this is from Dr. Lewaron's perspective, not mine. I would also like to recognize the Inuit of Nunatsiavut and Nunatukavut and the Innu of Natasinan and their ancestors as the original people of Labrador. We strive for respectful relationships with all the people of this province as we search for collective healing and true reconciliation and honor this beautiful land together. They also note in a footnote about this land acknowledgement that it was created collectively with leaders of most of the province's indigenous governing bodies. They say, these are not my words. They are words chosen for guests of this land. They are not mine to change. Um, And so that kind of humility, literally just the first page of the book is the land acknowledgement. I will be reading other things from it as we answer questions uh, because it was just such a profound piece of writing. 
But Dr. Lebaron is uh, the founder and director of the Civic Laboratory for Envi Environmental Action Research, uh, acronym is CLEAR, at Memorial University. And this is a, a laboratory that um, looks at fish guts from the region, and they're looking for plastics. So that's why the book is called Pollution is Colonialism, because um, they look through a lens of plastic pollution in their work. So the text is an anti-colonial approach to pollution science. And so what does this mean? Uh, Dr. Leboiron distinguishes between a decolonial and an anti-colonial approach to science and research. They define colonialism as a set of contemporary and evolving land relations that can be maintained by good intentions and even good deeds. So this was uh, a very humbling book to read because when you go through different parts of this, as we will today, you have to kind of reconcile with the facts, like different ways that in my own work, I've perpetuated colonialism. Um, the way all the institutions I've been a part of do. So, yeah, how how did you come across this book? What was that process like? Well, this was a, a recommendation from a dear friend of mine. So, shout out to my friend Ali Reith, um, PhD candidate Ali Reith, who uh, just passed their prospectus. Um, there, uh, Ali is an abolitionist agitator with me. Um, well, when I was in grad school, that's how we met, and they gave me this incredible book recommendation um, as a comrade and a friend, and. I finally finished reading it in time for us to talk about it on this podcast. Uh, so my goals in environmental justice really re revolve around ensuring that black, indigenous, and people of color, um, the communities, their communities benefit first and foremost from solutions to climate change. And that requires a lot of education on my part because I only come from one of those communities, right? So um, I've been learning a lot in, especially the work I do now on public lands because um, we talk with indigenous people a lot in terms of how to best manage those lands and what to advocate for at a at a national and federal level. So Dr. Lebaron laid out these land relations in a way that I've never thought about before. Uh, and I just, I learned a lot from this book. I went on a lot of tangents, read a lot of the citations and... Mark of a good book when you flip to the notes and the citations and you go through those as well. <laughs> right, exactly. Can you talk about how Dr. Liberon does uh, anti-colonial science? Okay, so I first think it's important to distinguish between decolonial and anti-colonial approaches. Um, and understanding what colonialism is important um, to do that. So one, one thing that they really outline very effectively in the book is that many people, and this is a quote, Many people understand colonialism as a monolithic structure with roots exclusively in historical bad action, rather than a set of contemporary and evolving land relations that can be maintained by good intentions and even good deeds. So we want to help the environment. We don't want to be wasting a bunch of plastic, so we, we recycle it. Uh, recycling that plastic actually assumes access to indigenous lands. It assumes that there is somewhere to put that um, and I don't think many recycling companies are asking for permission to, to make their practices where, where they're happening. So, and that's, an, that's a good intentioned environmental thing, right? right. So the difference between decolonial and anti-colonial, um, my understanding. So there was an article that they quoted a lot in this book um, called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor, written by Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang. Um, it's a really good article. I recommend reading it. It's very dense, but so good. And so one of the things they outline is that decolonization is not a metaphor. So you'll see, you know, you'll see like 
webinars and workshops and books about like decolonize this, decolonize that, decolonize your brain. And so what they're getting at in this article is that decolonization actually means that all set it does it decolonization is not accountable to settler f- futurity is like the way they put it in this article. It doesn't matter what happens to us. We don't get to be here anymore. What decolonization would actually look like is all of these lands would be re returned to the indigenous people and it wouldn't matter where all the settlers went. Even, you know, every kind of settler, not just, you know, the the ones who violently committed mass genocide. Um, So when we say we want to decolonize science, I mean, that would mean a lot of the structures that we work within would not exist. So anti-colonial science, what they're saying is it's, it's based more on a compromise. It's based on a compromise that, you know, like, for example, I work, Natural Resources Defense Council in the name is colonial. The fact that we're referring to, you know, lands and waters as natural resources rather than as entities, as a lot of indigenous cultures uh, respect different parts of the land as kin and stuff like that. Uh, so I acknowledge that I'm working in a colonial institution. There are elements of white supremacy all over the institution. You know, my organization was founded in the 70s. Interestingly, you know, like right after slash during the civil rights movement, but it was born out of the white conservation movement, not the environmental justice movement. So the environmental justice piece is something that, you know, we're working on now. But yeah, so anti-colonial science means that you're working within potentially racist and colonial institutions like a university, right? Like Dr. LeBaron is working at a at an academic institution that is a traditionally colonially founded institution. Um, but they're doing things within that institution that are anti-colonial. I mean, they're kind of like, you know, two approaches that I think about. You know, there's one approach that would be anarchy, burn down the institutions, which that's super valid, you know, like... The, st- the kind of stuff that, the kind of organizing that goes into that, you know, I identify as an abolitionist. I don't, I don't think police should exist uh, as an institution. Um, I believe that money should go into communities. But, um, you know, there are also things that I work on, like, again, being in a, a racist colonial institution where if I was actually like a full-on anarchist in this space, I would be making my own corner of something, you know what I mean? And then, you know, the other side is is what a lot of us do. And it's not like one or the other, but I'm just saying that if you're actually saying decolonize, that's what you mean. And that's why it's really important to to understand that. Can you talk a a little bit uh, more about Dr. Lebron's work? Yeah, so some examples of actually what this looks like in practice is pretty important. And they had a lot of really great content in the book about this. So... um, in the clear lab, they look at fish guts for plastic. They analyze the plastic and try to understand the trends of plastic pollution. Some examples of how they practice anti-colonial science in that work. There was a, a really important example that really stood out to me. So in order to look at crustaceans, if they wanted to analyze the plastic in there, they needed to use potassium hydroxide, KOH, to dissolve the, the shells so they could get into the guts. But in order to dispose of KOH, you have to dispose of it as hazardous waste. And hazardous waste disposal assumes access to indigenous lands. It assumes a permission to pollute. 
thresholds of pollution, permission to pollute is a very colonial structure. I mean, the way that in throughout the U.S. we have like, oh, so, you know, 5 ppm of this is bad, but 4 ppm is okay. That's assuming access, like it's, it's assuming that it's okay to do any amount of harm to the land. Um, and that's, yeah, so as a lab, they decided we're not going to use KOH anymore because that is a colonial practice to dispose of hazardous waste. It really limited um, what they could look at, but they decided to only use um, materials that they could dispose of safely and in ways to respect the land. I mean, that's really stood out to me because in, in my graduate work, I worked in an organic chemistry lab with a lot of stuff that we had to send to hazardous waste disposal. Um, I used to think all the time about all that waste we were generating and, you know, when there'd be some random bottle of something that no one knew what it was, so we had to report it to hazardous waste as literally unknown. It could be anything. I mean, the kind of just waste that we generate in labs is so problematic. And it's not, and thinking about this doesn't mean, oh, you have a solution to the way this comes up in your life, but it, it poses a problem that needs to be solved. And so it's something we can keep thinking about. But yeah, I thought that was a really, really great example. There's a, another example that has to do with hazardous waste disposal that was really cool. Um, so they worked with fish, they, they still do, they work with fish guts, right? So they get these fish guts from um, different commercial fishermen and, and um, you know, basically it's the part of the fish that people are less likely to use but they can still identify plastic pollution from it. And they don't waste any of it, by the way. Like, they actually, like, some of it they're able to eat and stuff like that. Uh, but the university lab requirement for disposing of those guts was to dispose as biohazardous waste. People in the lab, especially the students um, who are indigenous, um, they didn't like that idea because they weren't really, you know, just wearing gloves and disposing of these fish guts in the biohazardous waste is not respectful to the fish as as part of the earth, right? So they wanted to, um, so one of the lab members talked with their elder in their tribe, and they developed a gut repatriation protocol. And so Dr. Lavoiron, um basically took that protocol, asked and expected a lot of pushback from the safety office and asked for this protocol to be approved. And the safety office was like, sure, this is great, go for it. And so they, they put this note in that section of the book where they were like, and I forgot that I have allies in this space, that there are people within the institution, people within this colonial and racist institution that are also practicing anti-colonial practices and science, people that want to support this stuff. And so it's important to know that you have allies in, in your institution. And so now what they do is they take those guts back to the river that they got them from and they they give them back to the land so that way they're not wasted, they can be used as food, they can decompose properly. To end, what are some big takeaways that you have from the book, some things that uh, are ideas, uh, ways that you want to implement this this type of science into your own work with uh, in uh, national Resource Defense Council, but also in your own life. I mentioned this already, so I won't dwell on it, but being intentional about the language that we use is so critical, but it's also not enough. Um, one of the things in one of the articles I read that decolonization is not a metaphor article, uh, talked about these settler moves to innocence. So basically these things that settlers do to kind of assuage the guilt of colonialism. 
And one of those things is to decolonize your mind, quote unquote, um, where, you know, in your mind, you know, it's wrong, but you don't actually change anything in practice. So it's important that we think about this language, but then we actually put it into practice. Right. So that was, that really stood out to me. And, uh, one of the other things that, that they did that, um, really warmed my heart was how much gratitude they expressed throughout their work. Um, so instead of using, cause they, they cite like the bibliography is like 50 pages long. They cite so much other scholarly work from other indigenous scholars, but also just other scholars and people. They express gratitude to every single one of those people on the footnotes and talk about, you know, why they use that bit of knowledge, um, in a way that made it seem less extractive of taking someone's work and just quoting it to advance your own work, but instead having a communal relationship with that person, giving your perspective in more of an exchange kind of communal way. I, gratitude, so important, and something that I myself need to continue to work on. So thank you, Carolyn, for sharing us with this, this great book. And that's a wrap for this week, folks. If you enjoy this podcast, visit our program homepage at agentsofchangenej.org. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find us on X and Instagram and all the social media places. And follow us on Spotify or iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, all that good stuff. This podcast was written and recorded by Carolyn Ramirez and Gabriel Gadsden, produced and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Amizoda, Dr. Yoshira Ornelas Fanhorn, Dr. Vina Singlet, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Poddington Bear. Want to know a great way to stay up to date with our program? Sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. Have a great week, folks.